Welcome to the Plexus Presidential Podcast Series. We are excited to have Dr. John Jackson, President of William Jessup University, as our guest. So let's start off, you know, let's kind of walk through your journey. Um, you know, what what led you to the presidency? And I, you know, kind of tied to that, who are your mentors? It's always a good yeah. place to start. That's good. Well, um, Brad, I, I grew up in a church. I was a pastor's kid, had people patting me on the head saying, I wanted, uh, you should be a pastor when you grow up. And I said, absolutely not. So I was a church kid and I wanted to be a pro baseball player. So Brad, the life crisis of my uh, journey was age 15 when I was smart enough to figure out that I was good, but not great. And so I began uh, kind of just grappling with what does that mean for the rest of my life? I was a, had a I'm a spiritual person, had a really good relationship with God. And, and so uh, I told God I would do anything except be a pastor or a missionary. And uh, sure enough, uh, about a year later, I felt strongly I was supposed to be a pastor. So long story short, 31 years in full-time pastoral ministry, Southern California, Northern Nevada, ended up starting a church. So I have that entrepreneurship gene inside of me. Uh, and then out of that context, I came to a very large church here in the Sacramento region and uh, if, I, if I didn't think uh, different about my theological views, I would say I'm an accidental college president, but I'm really not. You look back in, in the 1980s, I got a PhD from the University of California, Santa Barbara in educational administration and organizational studies. And I knew about this school, William Jessup University. My third daughter had attended here. It was a small school, kind of a more of a family uh, school, and they were in trouble. Uh, they were in transition. And uh, long story short, uh, in 2011, March 2011, I became the president. That's a good segue to say, who are my mentors? Well, my dad and mom, obviously, huge shaping influence in my life. Uh, but there's a lot of pastors. So Jack Hayford, uh, Ed Silvoso, Rick Warren, they were huge mentors. I want to make a comment about higher ed, though. When I came in, so, oh my goodness, here I am, 49 years of age uh, back then. I'm going to be a, a college president. Uh, I made 27 phone calls, Brad, and I actually have notes from those 27 calls, 27 phone calls, about 10 different visits to college campuses. What I appreciated is that every single college president was open book. Hey, if there's anything that you we could we do that you could learn from, there's anything that you, our experience where you could avoid our mistakes, just was an open book. And I just really want to honor uh, leadership in, in higher ed has been a, a great experience for me to learn collegial benefits of, of shared experiences. It's been really great. That's excellent. So talk about a little bit about the, the community. I know, you, you know you're, you're in Rockland, California. Obviously, that's near you know, Granite Bay and Roseville and relatively close to the Sacramento area. In fact, I, did you work at Bayside? Yeah, I was at I was at Bayside Church. Uh, we launched a national network called Thriving Churches International. I came to be on the part of the office of the senior pastor at uh, Bayside Church, and I was literally there only nine months on the ground. I, I did a couple roles simultaneously, but nine months on the ground, and then I became the president. Really felt like a ricochet at the time, but turns out I think this is what God wanted, and we still love Bayside. We're in great relationship with Bayside as well as the other churches. So let me tell you about the community. We're 18 miles east of the state capital. Uh, you may uh, know this, Sacramento, uh, is the state capital of California, fifth largest economy on the planet. So what happens in California doesn't often stay in California for good and for bad sometimes. And so uh, we're basically an hour and a half from Lake Tahoe. 
So you've got the mountains to one end. We're an hour and 45 minutes to the Bay Area, to the city of San Francisco itself. And so we like to say sometimes, uh, you know, you can go anywhere from here. Uh, Central California is literally just an hour and a half south of us where the leading agricultural region in the whole planet is uh, located. So it's a really significant strategic location. Well, it must be um, quite a thrill. It must be interesting, you know, the change in temperature and degrees going from Rockland to San Francisco Bay Area or Rockland and maybe the, even the elevation up to Donner Lake. Yeah. Well, you're, you're right. And we happened as we're recording this, we're in uh, June, I believe. And, you know, the old uh, Mark Twain quote that the coldest day ever spent was a, a day in summer in San Francisco is true. You can go from here, Sacramento to San Francisco and have a 30 degree temperature drop. What's interesting about Tahoe uh, is you can have that same thing, but night and day temperatures in Tahoe can be 50 degrees difference. Be, be, be really warm during the day in the, in the summer and spring and then really cold at night. And of course, uh, here we could be in the 70s during the day and go up to Tahoe and find it snowing, be below the 30s. Mm -hmm. So you said you came in when uh, the institution uh, was financially challenged. Is that fair to say? <clears throat> yes, very fair. Yeah. And so, you know, how do you how do you shift that? How do you change that trend? Well, I want to want to first of all give honor the the man who was my predecessor. His name is Bryce Jessup. He was the son of the founder. Uh, he came and helped move the university when he was 65 years old from San Jose, where he'd already been the president about uh, 18 years or so, and he moved it here to this area. And I want to give all the credit in the world to him. The the recession that had happened 2006 to around nine or 10 here had happened, so it was really challenging. So for me as a leader, I knew two things. Number one, I needed to not mess up the legacy of this place because it had a great legacy. It was in some hard times, but I needed to not mess up the legacy. Number two, um, in my view, uh, view, uh, view Brad, uh, small dreams don't inflame the hearts of men. You have to have a big dream, a big vision. But if you don't produce on that big vision, if you don't put legs on that, I, I like to say that I dream of castles in the sky. But if you don't build a road to get there, then the problem is eventually people say, oh, that's just another dream. And so there's a little bit of dream fatigue here. So what I tried to do when I first got here was, yes, have a big vision, but start executing and getting wins. In my view, as a leader, part of what you got to do is you got to build trust, trust in your people for how you're going to handle them relationally. But you also got to build trust that you're going to succeed. So getting those early wins and creating momentum, I think, really helped our community here have confidence. So when I first came here, Brad, uh, I came from outside hired ed. I'd never led a hired institution and asked these questions. Uh, I look at your degrees and there's no math, no sciences, no arts except for music, no graduate programs, no online. And my question is, in what sense is this William Jessup University? And their answer was, well, our name is aspirational. So one of the ways that we got some wins is we assembled a team and we start adding math, sciences, arts outside of music. And then eventually about five years in, we started adding graduate programs and then online. And I think Brad, getting those wins, getting that momentum and then adding the basics. So we can now say we've about tripled in size. We've gone from about 600 to about 1800 in the, in the 11 years that I've been here. And by the way, all that was done, as you know, 
in a context where higher ed is declining. Higher ed's declining in enrollment. It's it's having some challenges, and and Jessup has not been without its challenges. But we've gratefully been able to build this by uh, having a big dream, but executing on the dream, getting some wins, and building momentum that builds trust to then allow you to take the next steps. And if I could just add one more thing. I don't know any private university, uh, and Jessup's a private faith-based university. I don't know any private university, Brad, that uh, must not stay, every private university must stay connected to the regional economy. The regional economy is absolutely critical because as much as we'd like to say, oh, kids are getting educated, they're getting, you know, the truth is dad and mom, and, and I is one if I could use improper English, um, dad and mom want to know that their kid is having a great college experience and they better get a job on their way out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, we talked about the market. I mean, the market is saturated. Um, and, and it, there's, there's a lot of competition. Yep. So, you know, so why, why William Jessup, you know, and especially in a position of a private faith-based school. So not just regionally, but even nationally, and especially when you look at online, yep. um, why William Jessup? Well, what's what's a great uh, question about that? Let me just address a couple of parts. But I will say, Jessup's gotten some great rec recognition the last several years. U.S. News and World Report: We're number one in social mobility in the Western United States. Number two, best value. So we've we've gained some recognition. How do we do that? Well, why Jessup? Uh, number one issue of Jessup is is two words: equipped and known. You come to Jessup, you're going to get equipped to fulfill your calling, and you're going to do that in a context where you're known. So we're big enough to get you opportunity but we're small enough to make sure that you're connected in relationship. Uh, second thing I would say is um, 95%, I want to make sure I quote the right number, 95% of our degrees require an internship prior to graduation. Last year at graduation, 84% of our graduating students had a full-time job or admission to full-time graduate studies uh, upon graduation. And so we've differentiated ourselves by being deeply committed to a relationship, by being deeply committed to getting you the tools, but also being equally as committed that you're gonna get out and you're gonna get a job. Uh, my elevator pitch, if you were a parent trapped in an elevator with me, you come oh. to Jessup, you send your student at Jessup, you're gonna thrive spiritually, your faith's gonna be built up, not torn down. You're gonna master the fundamentals. You're gonna learn to read, write, think and speak well. That's gonna serve you for a whole life. And number three, you're going to be exceptionally employable. You will not walk across that stage and get a fake diploma from me. And it will be fake until you spend, until you pay for every last dime you owe us. But you're not going to get a fake, you're not going to get a fake diploma from, from me and say, now what do I do? You're going to walk across that stage and hopefully the vast, vast majority, you will have your first job and be set with the skills that you need for the rest of your life. And so, you know, what a, what a great message and, and data to back that up. And so how do you make sure that you're engaging alumni to support the growth of the institution? Yeah, you know, um, I hate to say this, but if I could use a complicated word, bifurcate, uh, we have alums that were in San Jose. It was 2004 that we first came to Rockland. And so that's a weird part of our story. We really, Brad, um, when I came here in 2011, people told me, you know, we're really a 72-year-old startup. And I said, come on, you're just, they said, no, we really are. Well, it turns out the kind of graduates we had in San Jose were all Bible graduates and ministry graduates. And, and I was a pastor. I love that. But that serving that population is really staying in good communication, connecting with them, 
Uh, we have a network of about 900 churches. So, so that's really solid. Serving our alumni who are from Rockland, it's really all about staying in good communication with them. And you probably know this, Brad. I don't know exactly how old you are, but if you got kids, <clears throat> the difference between your children who read emails and your children who respond to text is a Grand Canyon. If oh, yeah. you have any kids that read emails, they're older. Uh, it's the younger folks. It's it's kind of their phone, and they respond to to the text, and that's it. Um, so we we text communicate all the time. We're sending out videos to them all the time. We're very active on social media, and so we have. I don't personally have, but we have TikTok. I do personally have Instagram, Snapchat. We're involved in all those platforms, connecting with our alums. Here's the other thing: we try to connect them to employers. I really think one of our first and best initiatives was we established a really strong career and life planning area on campus, and that served our alumni really well. Yeah, and I think, you know, you, you, you address one of the questions that I was going to bring up around, you know, how do you make sure that students are prepared? And maybe you can talk a little bit about the internships that really help students be prepared for a career where their job may not exist today. Yeah, boy, one of the most frightening statistics, um, Brad, that I've ever read is that something on the nature of 20% of all the jobs that will exist 15 years from now exist right now. If that's true, that a lot of the workforce of the future, like the jobs don't even exist today, how are we supposed to train them in a, in a collegiate setting? We're not a Voke Tech school, although I honor Voke Tech education. So how do we train them? And that's why, to me, mastering the fundamentals, reading, writing, thinking, and speaking, lifelong learning is absolutely critical. So what we try to do in internship is every employer we've ever talked to says this, Brad, um, I can train for competence, but I can't train for character. Mm -hmm. So we make sure that people have character foundations that are solid and they're equipped with the ability to learn. And then depending on their discipline, if it's in the sciences, if it's in the arts, if it's in business or, uh, you know, the humanities, we do our very best to get them very contemporary skills. Um, it used to be that universities like ours would apologize. Oh, 50% um, of our professors are adjuncts. I want to actually take a twist on that. Brad, I'm really grateful that 50% of our professors are adjuncts. You know why? Now, I love our full-time faculty. I absolutely love them. They're great. But I'm happy that 50% of our adjuncts, our professors are adjuncts, because those adjuncts are working every single day in their discipline. So when you take a business class from somebody who's a sales manager, or who's a, a CEO or a VP of a large company, I guarantee you what they're teaching in their class, they're using right now. So, um, so real world learning, just in time learning, equipping students with skills for what's happening in business or education or health sciences or psychology right now, super critical uh, to me. And that's part of how I think we make internships successful. Mm -hmm. And what do you see as far as the strengths or challenges as it relates to um, on campus versus online education? Yeah, you know, I, I'm not a Luddite, uh, anti-technology, I'm for technology. We're using technology right here, so it's it's a good thing. Brad, there's nothing like being in the same room, in the same space, having that real-time conversation. Um, so I, I would say this, on-ground maximizes the relational cap capabilities. Mm -hmm. Online 
maximizes flexibility and then technological access, meaning when you're online, you can access all kinds of resources technologically uh, at, at, at your fingertips, literally. So here's the, here's the pros and cons. Um, on ground, you get that relational community connection. We try to replicate that, by the way, Brad, online. Um, one of the things we do at Jessup that's sort of a differentiator, you can't take an online class at Jessup without being assigned to a success coach. Mm. A success coach who contacts you every single week. How can I help you? Kind of a con think of them as a concierge, like in a hotel. How can I help you? Is there an obstacle or roadblock you're facing? Is there some way I can help you navigate anything at Jessup? And then in our context, as a faith-based school, they'll also pray with them. That helps break through the barrier of online feeling detached and unrelational. On the other hand, if you're on ground, we give you huge access to electronic resources through our library and all of our online portals. So I think, Brad, the truth is, we're going to see more and more um, hybrid or uh, we're going to see synchronous online. So you get some of that simultaneity and we're going to see on ground leveraging more and more technology in the classroom and outside the classroom with resources. Mm -hmm. Well, and that also speaks to retention, first year retention, but also overall graduation rates, because, yes. you know, the presidents that we talk to and the institutions, generally speaking, that's that's hard. It's hard to keep, whether it be adult learners or traditional age learners, it's hard to keep them from stopping out at some period. And then once you, you know, once students stop out, generally speaking, they don't come back. It, you hate to put it crassly, but if I go to a restaurant and have a bad meal, it's really hard to get me back, hard, much harder than it is to get me to try you for the first time. So I want to say something that's a little bit maybe controversial, not to get you in trouble, but to get me in trouble. <laughs> you know the easiest way to have high retention rates? Have amazing students who enter totally college ready and who sail through college because they've got all the tools in hand. Mm -hmm. But yeah. if you want to serve first-generation college students, you want to serve students who have some learning challenges, you have to make a decision on the front end that we're going to not change the class requirements, but we're going to increase the support and resources we provide. So Jessup's retention rate has over the years been climbing steadily by use of our success coaches, our learning center resources, and the various uh, support mechanisms we provide, because we're committed to reaching those top level students. We have students coming to Jessup, uh, a few of them, who are admitted to Stanford, the most selective university in the United States, but they chose Jessup. So we're super happy about that. We got 4.0, 4.3, 4.5 kids. Awesome. But we also have a bunch of kids who are right at that marginal C level, first generation. I was helping a student the other day, just kind of randomly fill out a FAFSA report. Just so hard for them when families fragmented and stuff like that. And we have people on our campus who help do that. These are part of the college system that some of us who, you know, come from a college background, we understand all that. But man, so so retention is very complex. I, you're absolutely spot on. It's it's complex. I I think it is even more complex for students who are challenged in the whole college atmosphere. And we got to work hard to support them. Mm -hmm. And when you look at first generation, you know, to your point, first generation may not have the support at home to continue to 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 fight through it. You know, get through it, get that degree. Um, because here's what here's how that degree will benefit you. So how do you make sure that students don't fly the coop, so to speak, early and, and maybe take a job where they say, well, I'm getting paid a good amount of money, 
let, let me do this instead of getting dead over here. Well, you know, and again, we're recording this in, I think, June of 2022. You know, Brad, that that uh, our current reality is declining college enrollment, and the vast majority of that declining college enrollment is male. My personal feeling is they're not going to trade school and tech school. What's happening is they're deciding not to go to college or they're stopping out of college because they can work in a warehouse, which is great. It's fine. They can make X number of dollars and they don't think about 10, 15, 20 years from now. So what we do, Brad, we have a first year experience required of all freshmen. We have success coaches for all the various uh, groups in, a, in the university. And then thirdly, we work very, very, very hard to make sure they get personalized attention. It's part of the beauty of big enough to make an impact, small enough to make sure it's personal and customized. Mm -hmm. That's excellent. So right, you're in your office right now. Is that right? Yep. Yes. I always like to ask, is there any story that you have around pictures that you have on your wall? Or I do. Let me just, um, I'm going to move my screen just for a second and show you sure. one picture. That picture right there was is a South African boy painted by a South African painter uh, with some South African wood around the frame. And my friends brought that back to me. It's a wonderful uh, gift. Then if I don't know if you can see, but over here in the corner, uh, there's a, a picture that has a bunch of, looks like a bunch of little papers in it. Um, okay. That's a church. Yeah. That's a church that was celebrating its 75th anniversary, and I had the privilege to be the pastor of that church. And long story short, this was in 1990, and somebody had been a member of that church for 72 years. reason I keep that up in my office is to remind me that nobody ever stands on their own. We all stand on the shoulders of somebody else. And even, by the way, if you built your company from the ground up, that's awesome, but somebody poured into you, somebody made it possible for you to have this idea, and uh, we all need to have a little maybe humility and gratitude uh, to recognize the freedoms, especially here in the United States of America. We, we have unbelievable freedoms. And I think we ought to give thanks that we live in this atmosphere where we can attempt these things and experience these things. But it's because of the sacrifices of, peop of people who went on before us. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. So what are the top two or three things that kind of either to keep you up at night or wake you up early in the morning items? Whew. Uh, yeah, the older I get, it's it's more uh, waking up early in the morning than it is keeping me up late at night. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think I think Brad, um, to be honest, we're a faith-based school, so I worry a little bit about the California ecosystem. Um, there's a lot of California. It's it's interesting to me. A lot of California that was established by religious, faithful people. A lot of the faith-based schools contribute tons to the common good. 55% of all the graduate students in California go to private universities. But having said all that, I worry about the California ecosystem that, that sometimes, uh, without being, I don't mean to be political in any way, but, but without being, um, there's a sort of tolerance that sometimes doesn't exist for people of faith. So I'm, I'm burdened about that. So religious freedom would be number one. Number two, um, to be honest, the economics of higher ed, if I was just to be really crass, and that this probably means you won't invite me back, uh, I think all the uh, I think all the models of private higher ed uh, are irretrievably broken. I thought that 11 years ago when I became a college president. This whole discount rate thing, here's our price. We're going to give you a bunch of scholarships. So Johnny or Susie uh, or Mary, you know, didn't didn't have to pay thirty thousand or forty thousand. They got fifteen thousand of scholarships when we all know that that discount rate sometimes is financial need, but a lot of times it's athletic, it's uh, academic, it's artistic, and we're really putting together the package 
to have you pay the number that we really need you to pay anyway. And, and, you know, I think some of that's a game. So I long for the CarMax model. And yet I think the market doesn't want the CarMax model. It doesn't want the, the streamlined, um, no dicker sticker pricing. I think so that's frustrating to me. I also think that we're going to find um, governmental funding, which right now is rising uh, in the last year or two, uh, post-COVID. We're going to find governmental fi uh, funding for students. Access to higher ed is actually going to be very challenged in years ahead because I think we're going to have state and federal budget things. So I worry about I worry about the financial model and religious freedom. Those are probably my two big issues. Sure. No, and, and yeah, fair enough. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and, you know, my my family, again, to your point, not to get too political, but, um, you know, my family, I grew up in California and my family moved from California to Tennessee about a year and a half ago. Yeah, yeah, I understand. For I a number of reasons. Yeah, I've got two family members who are in process right now, so I might meet you in Tennessee sometime. Uh, <laughs> you know, Tennessee, Idaho, South Carolina, uh, num Texas, a number of places are kind of where Californians are moving. So it's sad. Well, let me ask you. So you grew up playing baseball. Yes. So who's your favorite team? Oh, this is so hard. I feel like a terrible person. I love playing baseball. Don Sutton for the LA Dodgers was my famous pitcher, my, uh, favorite pitcher many years ago. So the Dodgers were my favorites. This is going to kill you. You're not going to understand this, Brad. I moved to Nevada maybe 25 years ago. When I did, um, I started going to Giants games. Now, if you're a Dodger fan, it's the one team you hate <laughs> is the Giants. Sure. But here's what's here's the truth. I'm a terrible baseball fan unless I'm in the park. Mm -hmm. I don't like watching baseball on TV. But if I'm in, if I'm in uh, Dodger Stadium or in Giants Stadium or An Anaheim Stadium, the Angel Stadium, I love those stadiums. So I love being in the stadium. What's not to love about AT&T Park where the Giants are? So the truth is I'm a bad Absolutely. baseball fan. Uh, by birth, I'm a Dodgers fan. By geography, I've over time become a Giants fan, which ought to make everybody angry. <laughs> well, hey, I actually was talking to someone earlier today that said Bruce, Bruce Bochy just bought a house not too far from me here. Ah, there you go. Oh. Okay. Well, here's a small little tidbit. My brother-in-law, who's now uh, deceased, he had a, a brief period of time where he got to play with Bruce Bochy when he was with the Padres. Uh, oh, wow. So kind of a fun, kind of a fun thing. That's that, great. No, that, that's fun. That's fun. Um, so where do you see William Jessup in 10 years? Um, I'm probably more specific on this issue than, than, than you want me to be, but I, I got a board meeting tomorrow. So I've been kind of rehearsing. Okay. Quite <laughs> um, let's say, let's call it 20, 30, eight years from now, five areas of Jessup are going to be nationally ranked and we're right on the edge of, uh, so five disciplines, I think we'll have national ranking in five different disciplines and for our kind of school to be nationally ranked in five disciplines be huge. So five disciplines, number two. Uh, we're just going to have really robust platforms where on ground, online, you know, on campus, face to face, that th those modalities are going to be very clear and across every discipline. Number three, um, I think we're going to be financially sustainable. So here's two metrics. Number one, uh, average student debt at Jessup in 10 years from now will be less than 50% of the national average. Believe it or not, right now we're 30% less than the national average. We work super hard at making uh, high value, high quality, uh, faith-based education, Christ-centered uh, to be affordable and accessible. So I want to be a third. Here's the second metric. Um, I want to reduce debt in the next 10 years by, um, by about uh, 
$25 million and raise our endowment from 10 million uh, to 100 million. That's a huge uh, financial challenge. I'm not sure how we're gonna do that, but I just really believe that. Fourth and uh, final thing is, for me, it's really important that people give back and that they get involved in the public square. So I think we're gonna see all kinds of Jessup graduates in every arena of uh, public life making a difference. Yeah, and I, I love that. You know, you you've you've talked about this a couple of times, but you know, you you it you you, you can't do it alone, right? You know, you, you can't do it alone, and and you know, you want to be able to lean on on people, and people have supported us in some way, and some, you know, whether it be work or personal or both. You know, there's always there's always someone that you can point to to say that person helped me out and. and in some facet, you know, whether yeah. it be faith, whether it be work, whether it be personal, whether it be family, whatever the case may be. That's exactly right. And I think all of us, you know, I mentioned those words, gratitude and humility. It, it might just be a function of me getting older, but I also think, you know, we all realize, man, we've received gifts throughout the course of life. Sometimes it's the gift of time. Sometimes the gift of somebody's wisdom or insight or their experience. I, I had a young when I was a young guy, I had a middle-aged guy say to me, always connect with people 15 years older than you. I said, why is that? And he said, because you want to be talking to people who are at the next season of life. Well, mm -hmm. I found that if I could, I found that in higher ed. You know, if I think about in Southern California, Barry Corey and John Wallace and Ron Ellis and Bob Brower and Gail Beebe and all the folks at the various schools uh, have been very, very helpful to me. Now, by the way, not one of them said, and you should do exactly what we did. Every single one of them recognized that I was going to come and learn from them and then work with my team to figure out what should Jessup do. And, and they were all humble enough to say, please don't make our mistakes. And I'd say the same thing to people. Don't make Jessup's mistakes, make your own. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's great. And, and it's interesting because, you know, we've we've been doing podcasts now for about a year. And, you know, I'd say probably 75 percent or more of the presidents that have been on, um, you know, have, have, have talked about, you know, being good at what you do. Right. Being able to focus on areas that you areas of strength but also recognizing the realities of the world, you know, the discussions around the enrollment cliff, the discussions around net tuition revenue, and what does that mean? But also maybe you can talk a few minutes about the focus on, hey, enrollment is important. There's no question about that. Enrollment's important, but finding that student that you can impact and where it's a good fit between student and institution so that they can, can uh, persist and graduate. Well, let me start off a little philosophical. I forget where the quote came from, but the, the best way to demonstrate faith in the future is to is a is to plant a, a tree. Um, you know, you know how long trees take to grow. Well, students are like that. You find that right fit between a student. We have a student right now. I'm just coming to my mind. His name is Daniel. Daniel came from Brazil. He's a missionary kid, uh, so not have a lot of money. Uh, good student, but just didn't have a lot of money. Well, Daniel's been here for four years. He's made a huge impact on our campus. And I'd be willing if I had, if I was a betting person, if I had the money to bet, I would bet on Daniel. In fact, we have bet on Daniel. We think sometime five years from now, 10 years from now, Daniel's going to be one of those world changers. And what's that worth? I'm not, I'm not talking crassly just about money here. I'm just saying 
like if you want to fulfill your mission, at the end of the day, you had to be mission driven enough that you take risk. And I don't mean to crash the institution, but you're taking a risk every time you admit a student. What kind of support are they going to need? How are you going to pour into them? You're using valuable resources, yours and your whole team. So I think, um, Brad, we have an opportunity in uh, faith-based higher ed to plant trees, plant seedlings. And sometimes it takes a generation to grow. Now, we got to manage the everyday. So I do want to say this. I think in private higher ed, I told you a financial model is part of my frustration. Diversifying the revenue stream where it's not just tuition, it's not just contributions, it's not just ancillary revenue like housing, et cetera. But I think, <clears throat> I think schools are going to have to be involved in a series of, of things that diversify their financial revenues. Let me give you one crazy thought. Monetizing the IP of an academic institution is something that large public institutions are just now getting to in the last decade or so. I think small private schools actually have a lot of uncaptured IP and monetizing that will be one of the strategies for the future. I referenced Daniel before. Um, I'll make you a bet. I will bet you on this, maybe lunch or something. Um, <laughs> I'll bet you that in time, um, the next Facebook, the next Yahoo, the next, uh, you know, whatever's going to end up next Apple, next Google can come out of a private university. It doesn't have to come out of a big, huge R1 school. And so monetizing the IP of faculty, staff, monetizing IP of students is another huge one. Last thing I'll say is the regional economy is dramatically affected by private institutions. Private institutions like ours actually, I think, need to leverage our place in the private or in the regional economy and participate in a positive way. And I think that there's a way of monetizing that. That could be through housing revenue. It could be through a variety of other things. But I, I think that we need to diversify our revenue streams. And how do you feel you know, with, the, with the climate of inflation and rates being raised again today? How's that going to impact the job market? How's that going to impact William Jessup? Yeah. Um, well, at this moment that we're recording that, we're on track to bring in our second largest traditional class in history. Wow. So we're excited about that. However, I will tell you that the previous two falls, fall 20 and fall 21, were rough for traditional students. Online's growing very rapidly for us. One of our long-term futures is that we think we're going to have a couple thousand traditional students, a thousand grad students, and the remainder, about 7,000, will be online. We're, we're aiming for 10,000 students. So how a rate hike is going to happen to us, I think consumers are very, very aware of the rising costs of things. And I think college is going to have to continue to make accessibility a reality. Do I think it's a crisis? Let me say it this way. Uh, the largest schools will go forward, no problem. What, what is Harvard has a $56 billion endowment. I don't know what it is now after the stock market, but it's $56 billion endowment. What do they got to do to grow their endowment? Open the mail. If you're a place like Jessup, you got to work every day. You got to be in a relationship. You got to prove value. And then people have to trust us. And when they trust us, they make investments in us and our students. So in my view, Jessup's going to actually thrive during this atmosphere because we're gritty. We provide value and people know what we're producing. Our uh, School of Ed students, for instance, 100% placement rate ever since I've been here. Even when local ed was giving pink slips to current teachers, Jessup students were being hired uh, out of our School of Ed. Why? They're high character students. They're well-trained. 
and they stick with it. Once they're in the job, they stick with it and they make a difference. So I'm actually confident, but I'd be frank. I think, I think we're in for some really tough sledding in the next uh, maybe 12 to 18 months. Well, President Jackson, it's been a pleasure today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Brad. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you for joining the Plexus Presidential Podcast Series. For more information on the series, please visit us at plexus.com forward slash solutions. Thank you.